said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. I'm kind of laughing to myself awkwardly because right before we started recording, you asked if I had something related to a national day. Yeah, I'm a little, (laughs) I don't know if traumatized is the right word, (laughs) but I I find myself doing the classic Jason head shake when I'm like another one. And it's not that those episodes haven't been fun or valuable. They have, especially dear listener, if you have been with us on this might get uncomfortable for a while now. But it just, I'm almost, it's almost like PTSD in a way where I'm like, is she going to bring up like National Eggplant Bacon Day? What the fuck are we going to talk about eggplants? (laughs) But yet we did talk about eggplants in relation to penis euphemisms with emojis. So I guess, Whitney, you and I do find a way to segue pretty much damn near everything. I know. And the reason that I have so many of these days is because months ago, I was just looking at the year ahead and just trying to make sure we always had something interesting to talk about. And it it turns out that we didn't really need any prompts because we naturally find lots of topics to talk about. And I know you have something that you're really excited to dive into today. But I do have something that's like related to a time frame that we're in right now. And I actually think this is a really lovely thing. So what's also interesting is I initially came up with a lot of the schedule for this year based on this like list of national holidays. But yet sometimes I look them up and turns out that they're not happening. I don't know if that's because of COVID or maybe I got some misinformation. So for instance, this week was part of Feeding Pets of the Homeless Week. Oh, which wow. I thought was really sweet. And so, but when I looked it up, I couldn't actually find any information about that happening this year in 2020. However, I did find a really wonderful organization that does a lot of work with Pets of the Homeless. And it's actually like, that's the name of their nonprofit. And this week, they have something called Give a Dog a Bone. And that's from August 10th through the 16th. And it's a annual nationwide pet food drive. And I thought this was so lovely. I know, Jason, you're very passionate about feeding the homeless, but I think we also need to remember that the homeless often have companion animals and many times they're dogs. And it's really crucial that we have the awareness and we encourage our local communities to donate pet food and supplies to these people so that the dogs or other animals are well taken care of. Occasionally, you'll see cats or other types of critters with the homeless. And I often wonder when I see these animals, like, A, are they being well taken care of? B, where do these animals come from? And C, like, how did the homeless get the means to take care of these animals properly? Like, how well are they being fed? Do they have the right type of shelter? Do they have a bed to lay in at night? And I think a lot of us take for granted those things with our animals. And so I really wanted to bring this up as a, as a subject matter. And along that, there was a lovely article that I will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. So for you, the listener, if you haven't visited our website yet, it's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And we have show notes for every episode with resources and references to everything that we mention. 
And this welfare nonprofit is based in Carson City. They recently received a grant from the Humane Society. So as of July 2020, and this organization has been going on since 2008. They provide free pet food supplies, emergency vet care, and wellness clinics to companion animals of the homeless across the nation. And I just thought it was really important for us to touch upon this because during COVID, when things are already really tense and scary, just raising our knowledge about what's going on with the homeless in general, but knowing that these animals are being more taken care of because of funds like this, and they're able to provide assistance to more people because of this grant that they were just given. And you can actually go and donate directly if you'd like. If you go to petsofthehomeless.org, you can learn more about this. And they have a lovely newsletter, which is where I found some of this information as well. They have tax-deductible gifts that you can purchase if you'd like. They also will share success stories. And it's so incredibly sweet because in this recent newsletter for August 2020, they shared about two dogs Tika and Pickles. Oh and they're my both God. in San Diego. And Tika is with a woman who's been homeless for two years. She receives food stamps and lives in the shelter. And she has this 12-year-old chihuahua named Tika. And she actually fell off her bunk bed at the shelter and broke her jaw. So this woman called this organization and they approved an examination for free at a vet clinic. And then Pickles, which I love that name, is with a companion who's been homeless for nine months living on the streets of San Diego. And they're on a list waiting for housing and receiving food stamps. So this person called this organization and was able to help out this dog who had been limping. And they gave her some emergency care. So they're just really heartwarming stories. And I thought they were a lovely thing to start off this episode with, just something positive and something actionable for each of us to do and really opening up our worldview on what's happening outside of our lives, which I think is an ongoing piece of our conversation here on the show. Yeah, it's it's also something I've referenced in relation to my history with my father, Andres, that the last eight years of his life, he was homeless. So my father being on the streets and the volunteering that I have been doing, especially here in 2020, a lot with our good friend, Nicole Dursway, who's a previous guest. We'll link to her episode in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And Nicole earlier this year started a wonderful organization here in Los Angeles where Whitney and I reside called the Martha Project LA, which is a dedication to her grandmother, Martha, who was an amazing chef that inspired Chef Nicole's culinary career. And I've gone about three or four times now, it happens once or twice a month, where we prepare plant-based and vegan meals and distribute them to the homeless. We, at times, have done several hundred of these bagged lunches. Like We've done stir-fry, and we've done burritos, and we've done a whole variety of meals. And to me, it's not only the gift of being of service to the humans, Whitney, out there, but to your point, there are so many of them that I sit and have small conversations with, or in some some cases, lengthier conversations. And quite often, the remark that I get from people who have companion animals, houseless people, is that they're so grateful for the food because so many of them 
if they get money or they receive donations, they feed their dogs and their companion animals first. That's something that I hear more frequently is that, hey, you know, when I have the money or I have food, I, I let my dog or my, in rarer cases, cats, mostly dogs. But I just love this organization. And it's something that's really near and dear to my heart because as I go on this mini rant about my dad's history and, and my dedication to doing this volunteer work is I think that there is a lot of misconceptions around homeless people and houseless people automatically being derelicts or drug addicts or having mental illness. And yes, there are some people that are like that, but I, I think the stereotype is unfounded because knowing what my father went through and sitting down and having conversations, one of the places that I frequently go to to volunteer is Echo Park. And it's about 12 minute drive from my house here in LA. And I've talked to people that are more recently homeless, Whitney, that through a series of obviously downturn in the COVID economy combined with not being able to get unemployment benefits or access to adequate health care or whatever the case is, it's not surprising to me, but it may be surprising to the listener to know that there are people that they have laptop computers and they have iPads and they, they have the things that we probably take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis of our ordinary lives. But through a series of circumstances, these people are very recently houseless and they're living in tents and you realize that they are not addicts or they don't have a mental illness or they're, they're not alcoholics. They simply have been, I suppose, recipients of not the kind of support of the system that some of us get. And so I'm just saying that to encourage us to examine our judgments and our stereotypes around houseless people because a lot of them are just, they're not true. That's all I wanted to say about that. <laughs> so I don't know if there's a, an interesting or slick way for me to transition into what's been on my mind recently, Whitney. But the other night I was laying down, this is about two or three nights ago, and I couldn't go to sleep because there were these thoughts racing through my mind. I've actually, on a larger scope, been having some difficulty with insomnia lately. I'm just feeling really anxious. I'm feeling a lot of kind of subconscious stress, I think, around the uncertainty with COVID. We've covered this in, in many episodes, but there are some nights I just find it really difficult to sleep. And the other night I was tossing and turning and I was thinking about something that I used to do really frequently in childhood that I just really don't do as an adult anymore. You know, there are these things that when we're children or young adults that we're kind of obsessed with, you know, and, and you and I have talked about certain musical artists or, or phases of our childhood of, of things we were really into that we're not into anymore. And this one thing had me reflecting on an aspect of my childhood and I want to I give a little bit of context before we go into it, because I know you'll have some things to say about this, Whitney. I've mentioned my mentor, Michael, here on the podcast, which you've known Michael for many years. He's like a father figure to me. I've done so much meditation, spiritual, transformational work with him. And one of the concepts he taught me many, many years ago was that when we think about food, we often think about what's on the end of our fork or our spoon. But he was really encouraging me in the cosmology of his work, which is called transformational anthropology, to think about food as the impressions we take in, the books we read, the movies we watch, the music we listen to, the company we keep, that food, mental and spiritual food, is sometimes even more profound and has an even greater effect sometimes than the physical food that we ingest. All of this is to say, I'm in bed, I'm thinking about something very specific, and I'm like, wow, I don't really do this anymore. And the thing that I was thinking about, Whitney, when I was a child, I was obsessed, obsessed with horror movies. I was a huge horror movie fan. And I think back to some of the stuff I watched when I was really little. And it's kind of crazy, the stuff that I don't even want to say like my mom let me watch. I think in a lot of cases, 
my mom being a single mom and, and working three and four jobs at a time to make ends meet, I henceforth spent a lot of time on my own. I was with my grandma and grandpa, my aunts, uncles, cousins. I had a lot of family members that would care for me while my mom was away working to make ends meet. And as a result, I kind of just got obsessed with horror movies. I was into the Evil Dead movies directed by the great Sam Raimi. I got into all of the George Romero, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, all the zombie films. And at a very young age, I remember one of my first horror movie memories. I think I was way too young to watch this, Whitney, was the original Alien movie. You remember the classic chest bursting scene, right? It was so gory. And there was so much just bloodshed and guts and gore. And, and I'm like five or six years old fucking watching Alien. And it's, it's an interesting conversation because I realize that I've grown into a, a mental space where I can't consume or watch that level of gore and violence anymore. Like I have a, I have a palpable reaction in my body. And it makes me really think about as a child watching extremely violent movies and playing super violent video games and listening to like gangster rap music and all that stuff. And it's also interesting. I'm on a long rant. I'm going to wrap up because I want to hear your comments on this, that I remember in the 80s and 90s, they had all these trials with the US government talking about satanic messages, violent messages in music and movies, and so many actors and musicians were on trial. And I remember in the Reagan administration, they were saying, if kids listen to this and watch this stuff, they're going to grow up to be killers and gang members and rapists. And I was watching all that crazy violent stuff. And I didn't grow up to be a serial killer or a gang member or any of that stuff. But I just reflect on all that, Whitney, and think, I really don't want to watch that stuff anymore. But as a kid, I had some like obsession with that kind of violence. I don't know that this is leading to anything other than I just want to hear your feedback on it. I remember when Columbine happened, there was a lot of discussion around video games and their impact on young minds. And there was this idea that if you played video games that were violent, then you would become violent. I remember that. Yeah. And it is interesting because I don't remember exactly what I thought back then, but I do remember around that time that I would dabble in video games like pretty harmless. But there was this James Bond game for Nintendo 64 that was really popular. And I would play that from time to time. And you're it's like a first-person shooter game when you're walking around and killing people. And it's like this competition, right? And so that's the first thing that came to mind for me, Jason, is that, A, I've played a few of those video games. I, I never really got that into that type. Like violent games haven't really appealed to me as much as I've been more of like a Mario <laughs> type of game player. I, I like kind of the cuter cartoon experiences like Sonic the Hedgehog. I like I'm more drawn to those fun, innocent games or strategy games that didn't involve killing others. But every once in a while, even those games can feel kind of violent because there'll be competition. Like even there's versions of the Mario games that are about like tossing somebody off an island and you, you're you the last man standing. What's it called? Like Mario Party or something like that. And it is interesting when you think about video games and that appeal, it's almost like we use them as an outlet in a way to do things that aren't in our current reality. And I think that we're very drawn to things like that. I also love to play things like The Sims and it was like building houses or creating these characters and you're basically playing God. And there's this big appeal, especially when you're younger. 
and maybe you feel like you don't have much control over your life. And so things like that can feel really satisfying. And then I talked about this in a few episodes, how at the early days of COVID back in March and April of this year, I was playing this game called Animal Crossing a lot. And that game actually is often described as so innocent because there is no death involved, really. Like, it's just so sweet. And a lot of people were playing that game because it was allowing them to escape from harsh realities of life. And so I think the opposite can be true, too, where whether any type of media, whether you're playing a game or you're watching something is often used as a form of escapism. And sometimes we look for the opposite of our lives, not necessarily something that we can relate to. And when it comes to movies and TV shows, I think a lot of times it is a fascination. I mean, I get very uncomfortable with certain types of violence and then other types of violence I feel very numb to. Like Sometimes I step back and I think, it's a little weird how easy it is for me to watch this. Like, I'm not that disturbed by it. Wow, really? Oh, sure. I mean, I actually was watching, this is a little meta, but I was watching a really great show on Netflix called Love on the Spectrum. And one of the episodes, one of the people on the show mentioned how she couldn't watch Jurassic Park because it was too violent. And Jurassic Park is one of my favorite movies. And I was like, oh, I, I guess I hadn't really thought of Jurassic Park as being too violent, (laughs) even though it's about like dinosaurs killing people, you know, and going crazy and people literally running for their lives. Like the thought of Jurassic Park, I don't associate that with violence. And that's kind of an interesting thing to reflect upon how I can watch somebody get eaten by a dinosaur and be unfazed by it or eaten by a shark or whatever else. Like for some reason, that type of content doesn't disturb me. What tends to is like torture. So movies like Saw really disturbed me. And also the movie that even bringing it up is making me a little sick to my stomach is this super disturbing one. I'm curious if you ever watched it or at least know of it. The Human Centipede. Oh, (laughs) boy. Do you know about that movie? Oh, yeah. But actually, I'm having this flashback to a conversation in which you told me you had not seen it. Is that correct? No, I still haven't seen it. See, I don't know that I could, though, now. Because the whole point, Whitney, was that I think my younger self would have been like, oh, yeah. But now, everything that I've heard about it, I don't... It's awful. It's really awful. And it is interesting, though, because they made a sequel to it. And like, I'm laughing because I can't believe that a sequel is made to a movie like that. But at the same time, I think a lot of people watch content like that. And it's so gross and disturbing, in my opinion. Everybody's going to have their different perspectives on it. But it it was just like hard for me to wrap my head around the fact, why would you ever want to watch something like that again? But there are people that like find that really pleasurable to watch. And even the Saw movies, I mean, it's a whole franchise. Like, I don't even know how many they made of that. Or there was uh, that director, Eli Roth, who did a lot of those type of like torture films. And those do not appeal to me. And thinking about those, Jason, comes back to this conversation of two things. One is, does watching content like that make you violent? What does that say about you? How does it affect your psyche? I don't know. I think it's actually very, very complicated because I'm not sure that in my life seeing the type of content, again, like let's just say Jurassic Park, like that's a 
type of violent movie I can easily watch and just not be affected by it. Perhaps because it is so fantastical. It's like we're not living with dinosaurs. We don't have real Jurassic Park. I think the appeal to me was that I was just fascinated by dinosaurs like you are, Jason. And it was like, wow, like this magical fantasy world that they've created. I think those are usually easier for me to watch than anything that feels like it's hitting too close to home, like it could actually be possible for it to actually happen to me or somebody else I know. That stuff tends to be a little harder. Yeah, I think to me, it's just interesting that lately I've been having random thoughts on these sleepless nights, as I mentioned, of content that I haven't watched in years. And it's made me curious about the long-lasting psychological effects. You know, here's what I mean by that. I'm an anecdotal piece of evidence, right? And I think, again, going back to kind of what you were talking about with Columbine was sort of a mirror image of some of the conversations that were happening in, in the 80s during the Reagan administration of, yeah, does heavy metal music and sort of these pseudo-satanic images and horror movies and music, do they contribute to violent delinquency in youth. And of course, when Columbine came out, I remember a lot of news outlets interviewing Marilyn Manson because the Columbine shooters were discovered to be Marilyn Manson fans. And it was very reminiscent of that era of they were kind of grilling Marilyn Manson about his level of responsibility in that. But if I look at myself kind of as an archetype, growing up with a single mom, absentee dad, growing up lower income in Detroit, moving from house to house, being looked after by family members, one could say, and also being bullied, which we covered in a previous episode, right? If I look at the elements of my life, Whitney, me listening to, again, heavy metal, gangster rap music, playing violent video games, watching really disturbing, gory horror movies growing up, I could look at that just independently and say, oh, that with my upbringing and the context of it and the bullying and all that, like, wow, I could have been a person maybe who got desensitized to the point where I could have, I don't know, done some violent things. And I didn't. I can't say why. And I can't say why other kids who maybe have challenging family situations or are bullied or have mental health issues. I don't know. It's, as you said, it's a very complicated subject. The fascinating thing for me, though, is that I'm a 43-year-old man and I have thoughts about stuff that I haven't watched since childhood. And it's, to me, amazing the capacity of memory in the brain and how complex our neurological structures are, but how that shit still haunts me, right? Like I thought the other night I was thinking about what what movie was I thinking about? Some movie from the eighties called night of the demons. I mean, just gory stuff that I think about now. And I even like cringe when I think about it, but somehow as a kid, I was like, this is amazing. Let's go watch Freddy Krueger. Let's watch Friday the 13th. Like to me, it even got to the point. And I don't know if this was something that you grew up with, But in the 80s and 90s, there was a series of videos that came out. This was VHS days, y'all, that you couldn't get these at Blockbuster, but you could find these at super indie movie stores. And it was a series of like home videos called Faces of Death. Do you remember this, Whitney? No idea what you're talking about. Okay. So there was a production company called Gorgon Video. Not to be confused with the nickname for your dog. No, that's Gargola. Gargola. Or Gorgor. Gorgor. <laughs> so I got to the point where I was like, I was so into horror movies that some friend in high school, I think, said, have you ever watched Faces of Death? I was like, what the hell is Faces of Death? It was a compilation video 
that this production company, and there were a lot of them, I think there were like 12 or 15 or 20, there was a lot of these comp videos. And they were horrible. It was like home movie filmed actual footage of people getting their arms torn off, their legs cut off, accidents. I mean, torture scenes. I mean, it was fucked up shit. And somehow as a kid, as a teenager, I wanted to push the envelope of seeing how much capacity I had for taking in this kind of stuff. And to me, that was my limit. I found that like psychologically watching actual scenes of dismemberment and torture and pain and like real life violence, that was my limit. Like I, I, I think I only watched a couple of them and I was like, I can't do this because that moved beyond fantasy and scripted content, which in some cases, I mean, some of the movies, like I mentioned, the zombie movies with like guts and blood and crazy shit. But then when you see it, like this is actual stuff that's happening in life. I couldn't go further than that. Like to me at that time, I remember reading articles about snuff films, like people that would actually film the killing of other people. And somehow that got out on the black market and you could get videotapes of this stuff, but I could never take it that far. But I think the reason I'm saying all this is what was it in my child mind that felt so fascinated by consuming that level of violence that I had to go even beyond Hollywood and video games and music to watch it's, I haven't thought about this in years, Whitney. I haven't thought about this in years. And I'm, I'm having this in real time with you because I'm uncomfortable discussing it. That what in my young adolescent teenage mind was like, I want to see people getting their arms ripped off and seeing people getting tortured and like, what the fuck? I'm still trying to figure out what that was about. I don't have an answer in this moment. I'm trying to figure it out in real time with you on this podcast because I have no desire to watch that stuff right now. I, I, I feel like I would be absolutely sick to my stomach. But back then, I was like, yeah, give me more until I found my boundary, which was actual life torture, dismemberment and pain. I couldn't go past that. Yeah, it is interesting because it, it makes me uncomfortable thinking about that stuff. It also reminds me of another movie I saw that I really wish that I hadn't. And I actually don't even remember the name of it. It was a sequel and it was about the dark web. It actually had the title dark web in it. So if, I'll look it up at some point and find it. But it came out probably in 2018 or so. And it was a fantasy story about like these teenagers going on the dark web and like their webcams got hacked and like these people were able to like come and kill them or something as a result. But like it was kind of like a cautionary tale because it actually caused me to want to be more careful and also like you're saying, Jason, create these boundaries because what I find disturbing, I think what makes me uncomfortable right now is that thanks to platforms like TikTok, I've been seeing a lot of discussion around what might be hidden and what's actually happening, like human trafficking. I feel like my awareness is growing around that. And I've also don't feel like I fully know what's happening. Maybe nobody really does. And I think part of the reason that we don't know that much in general is because it is so hard to comprehend the fact that this is like horrific stuff, like you're explaining, that is in real life. And it almost feels like in my head, oh, this can't possibly be true. And I'll hear the statistics about human trafficking. And I'm like, it almost like I block it out because I just can't even imagine that this happens to some people. But we do need to pay attention to this because it is happening. And if we keep ignoring it, then it'll continue to happen. We have to take action around it. And TikTok is really interesting because as of now, it seems like 
there's a lot of people talking about these things more than I've seen anywhere else on the web that I've looked for. Again, I, I have not sought out this information. What's interesting about TikTok is you kind of stumble upon a lot of different things. And there's a lot of people talking about human trafficking. And there was this one video I saw recently of a guy on a shipping container, transportation boat, whatever. (laughs) And he was saying, again, like you always have to double the cross-reference this, but then sometimes I feel like how easy is it to cross-reference this stuff? Like there's a little tangent before I get back to this guy, but there was a lot of information recently about Wayfair, the company, and how people are speculating that they were involved with human trafficking. And you can go and find articles trying to back up it with evidence and then articles debunking it. And in my head, I'm like, I don't know what to believe because if there's a powerful company doing these things, of course, with all their money and power and connections, they'll find ways to make it seem like it's not happening. I mean, that that I feel like is being brought to our attention a lot right now, especially right now. There's a lot going on about Jeffrey Epstein and the, the people that were involved with him and the Wayfair also ties into that. And so almost every single day, I'm seeing people talk about this stuff. And like, it makes me question all of these public figures and their involvements. And I I think that I start to feel like, what can I actually trust? And anyways, one of these pieces of information I saw was the guy on this big boat. And he was saying how a very small percentage of shipping containers are actually checked or scanned or anything. I think he said like 5% of them and they can hold like some crazy, these boats hold a crazy amounts of shipping containers. And he was wondering if there were people being human trafficked in these shipping containers. And here he is on this boat and he was basically like trying to let people know. He's like, there could be people in this boat with me right now in these shipping containers. And I would never know because in order to keep this business operating, we don't have enough time to check every container. Wow. Shit. You know what I mean? And it just started to make me wonder like how many things are being slipped under the radar because there's just not enough time to justify spending time looking for things like this, right? Like it's almost like, well, we can't check everything. So some things are just, you're never going to know what's in a container. You're never going to, you know, like there's a lot happening that isn't stopped because we don't have the resources to check for everything. And this kind of goes back to this dark web idea. It's like where there's a will, there's a way. And there's a lot of people out there who are so deeply fascinated with things like this. And I think psychologically, if you can, at some stage in your life, Jason, relate to that desire to see something disturbing, there's got to be a lot of people that are doing that in their adulthood because they've never gotten to a point of realizing or their own boundaries Or maybe there's just something psychologically that makes horrible things appealing to them. And this also reminds me of a documentary series I watched recently, which I will not name because this is a little bit of a spoiler. But in the final episode, they were talking about the motivation that this one person had for doing horrible things. And they were kind of researching this person's history and discovering all of these disturbing things about this man's childhood that may have led him to do horrible things to other people. And it just got me thinking how many people out there have gone through their own versions of torture or have witnessed it or something happened that 
made this appealing to them to either do or to watch and to participate in in some ways. And so it becomes this like obsession for violent things. And then it also makes me wonder what you're saying here, Jason, is you might not have be quite at that extreme and neither am I, but there's still like some, for a lot of us, this core desire to observe the horrific. And without really studying it, I can only speculate, but I think there's just this idea of, I don't know if it's escapism, but it's fascination because you're in such disbelief, you have to see it for yourself. That's interesting. Like, can this actually be happening? The other thing I can relate to with this is when 9-11 happened, I had this really strong desire for many years. Not desire is not quite the right word, but I had this wish that I had been there to see 9-11 in person because I was having such a hard time cognitively dealing with it. And I kept thinking, like, if only I could have seen it happen in person, maybe this would make more sense to me. Maybe I would be able to process this better if I had been there in New York City and saw the towers collapsing. That's so fascinating. And so it goes back to this idea is, do we watch horrible things as a way to cognitively understand them? Do you think that's part of the appeal? like, Or would you say that it purely was like fascination or entertainment or... Was it an outlet for you in some sense? Like, what do you think was the appeal for you when you used to watch those things? Hmm. It's hard for me to recall what my hormone-laden adolescent brain was thinking. I mean, part of it, I think, to paraphrase Joe Rogan, I was listening to a podcast of his maybe last year, and he he said, he's like, you know, the most dangerous group of people on, on the planet? He's like, teenage boys. He's like, they're so full of adrenaline and hormones and sexuality and violence and you know you add in lack of direction or lack of parental supervision i think part of it was and again this is not me trying to circumvent my individual behavior but part of it i think was just like i'm a teenage guy who is getting in fights and getting beat up and getting bullied and maybe it was a psychological out maybe it was a way for me to feel more powerful in the sense that if I'm able to subject myself to witnessing this kind of violence, somehow maybe I'll have a higher resilience for it when I'm actually being punched and beat up and and the subject of violence in real life. Maybe that was something psychologically for me, Whitney. But I think spiritually, it's almost like I lacked any sense of initiation. And here's what I mean by it. If I look at a lot of ancient cultures, tribal cultures, native cultures that when it was an adolescent time for a young man to be welcomed into adulthood, that in many, many cases, the elder men in the tribe would take them and do some sort of death initiation by covering them with bugs and covering them in dirt, right? Not to kill them, but it's sort of like in the ancient Toltec cultures. Don Miguel Ruiz actually talks about this in his book, Beyond Fear. Love Don Miguel Ruiz. That part of our obsession with death and violence and extreme risk-taking and adrenaline junkies in our culture is that in particular men specifically do not have any sort of initiation rituals involving dying before you die. And in the book, he talks about a lot of the rituals in his Toltec tradition of taking young men out 
into the woods or the jungle and leaving them behind to fend for themselves and find your way back to the village or burying them in dirt covered in bugs and dirt or in some cases filling the young men with hallucinogenic drugs and taking them on a vision quest. But the whole point is to build a sense of a larger context that we don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to treat death as a taboo because we're a little bit fucked up in this culture in the sense, Whitney, that we have all this violence in video games, music, TV, movies, the media, but then we're afraid to actually talk about actually dying. You know, death, real death is still such a taboo subject that we're afraid to discuss. We want to put off our own mortality, hence plastic surgery and longevity aids and blood transfusions, and people aren't comfortable talking about death. And I do think it's a lack of initiation and tradition and ceremony in our culture. And I didn't have that. You know, my dad wasn't around. I didn't have a male figure in my life that was testing me or strengthening my sense of independence or my sense of resilience. And certainly there was no sense of tradition or ritual in my family, right? It was like, we figure out what it means to be a man. Go ahead. And so maybe in my long-winded answer, it was me trying to initiate myself, right? Like skateboarding, getting in fights. I mentioned this in a previous episode in my 20s, like doing 150 miles an hour on a motorcycle. Like, ooh, can I do this without killing myself? I think I was trying to ritualize myself, if that makes any sense at all. It does. I mean, on a cognitive understanding level, I think there might be some differences for how women come of age. And I think there's more of a supportive environment, like, because girls will talk to each other about these things. It feels kind of like easier to talk to your mom about these things. You know, I had both male and female parental figures, unlike what you're describing, Jason. So I'm not sure that I can relate to that, but it is certainly interesting. I guess like I wonder how true that is for others, though, even when they have those parental figures in their life, if it's about like part of growing up. I think to me, it just feels a like more of an outlet, a curiosity. And maybe it goes back to what you're saying, how a lot of these things feel taboo and we are naturally curious and drawn to things that we're told not to talk about or not to do, not to say. And if we don't have somebody explaining something to us, we'll go seek out the answers for ourselves. Right, right. And so I think this is part of where like conspiracy theories are appealing too. It's like, how do I explain this? How do I process this? How do I make sense of something? Oh, here's something that makes sense to me. And since nobody else is talking about it, like this is what I'm going to believe. And I think that this is part of our shared passion is for discussing things, even when they're uncomfortable. I think a lot of people just simply don't talk about things like death or violence because it feels too hard. And It also can feel really scary. And I think as parents or parental figures, it might feel really challenging to figure out, like, how do you discuss these horrible elements of life? Like, maybe we'll just let the kids not worry about that right now. Like, let's not tell them about it when they don't need to know. But on the other hand, I think a lot of children benefit from straight talk and learning. Like, it might be better for them to learn from you than from elsewhere because you as a parental figure, you can't control where they're getting information and how someone's sharing it and all of that. And it would benefit parents and parental figures to really learn how to have these discussions in a psychologically healthy way. And also simultaneously talk with children about what they're consuming. 
I think a lot of parents tend to restrict their children so much. Like when I think about growing up and not being able to see rated R movies, like that just made me want to see them more. For sure. And I didn't understand why I wasn't supposed to see something. I remember like sex was so taboo. And yet I was so curious about sex growing up, like pretty young. I think before I even turned 10 years old, I was just so interested in it. And it was always like this whisper, hush, hush. And you would like talk to your friends about it. And I think sex is very uncomfortable to talk about with your parents. But my parents found ways to discuss it here and there. And my school system also did a little bit like the sex education stuff. But for the most part, a lot of it is discovering it through your friends or self-exploration physically and emotionally. Like you're, especially now with all the access we have to the internet, you can go find pretty much anything, which is kind of crazy because there's a lot of creepy stuff online that you could stumble upon as a little kid that might not be great. But that you have to find that balance where if you try not to let your kid do anything without you watching, then the kid's going to find a way to sneak something, you know? And that's the interesting thing with rated R because I think part of your point too, Jason, is the psychological effects of these things and like how it is stuck in our brains and how we have a lot of muscle memory. And when we experience fear or deep discomfort, that we have a physical memory of that. And, you know, and I bring up like a movie like The Human Centipede, like it makes me feel physically uncomfortable because I that's how I felt when I was watching the movie. Totally. And so it does live in our bodies. And that's part of how we need to address these things. Because I think also going back to one of your points, Jason, is like, as kids, we just don't think it's going to have those long-term effects on us. We think that oh, we can just watch this. And maybe, you know, you have peer pressure to watch something. Like, all your friends are doing it. So, like, I'm going to watch this movie even though I might not be comfortable with it. Or, you know, like, you getting that suggestion from your friend to go find that compilation. Maybe it's because somebody recommended it to you and you were super curious. And, I mean, I have tons of memories of those type of things growing up and the way that you would kind of push yourself to do something because pressure or curiosity, and then you kind of regret it. And I bet you there's all sorts of emotions that are buried deep down that don't come up until late at night like you experienced, Jason. And I think that that's part of life. What's interesting to me is it seems like life is a combination of unraveling the past and yet still learning new information. Like it's, it's kind of trying to figure out how old things affected us and simultaneously taking in something new to grow as human beings. So it's like a two-step process. Yeah. And the more conscious we are of ourselves, aware, and also the openness that we have to get uncomfortable because a lot of this exploration is really uncomfortable. Speaking of TikTok, I did see another video earlier today that somebody just making a very simple point that if we try to suppress things too much, it doesn't work to our benefit to try to avoid uncomfortable feelings because they're going to be there whether we want to address them or not. And it actually just makes things worse. And maybe it does bring up anxiety. You know, like, I don't want to address this in the moment. It it feels too much for us. But like, that doesn't mean that we get to skip over it. It's going to be there no matter what. And it actually could make us feel worse if we don't address things head on as soon as possible. 
And I wonder with your anxiety, Jason, this is part of that unraveling for you as you finally addressing things from your past. Yeah, I think it also brings up an important question, Whitney, which is, does, does choosing to intentionally consume certain kinds of violent content, is it beneficial? And, and I want to blow this out for a second because something came up when I was first making the transition to go from standard American diet to eating more plants and then vegetarian and vegan. That was about a three-year process for me between 18 and right before I turned 21. And at that time, there, there certainly isn't the amount of footage there is now, but I remember watching slaughterhouse videos for the first time and watching circus torture videos and animals being horrifically abused. And then for a lot of people, their first exposure to some of this footage was Earthlings that our friend Sean Monson and Joaquin Phoenix came out. That was, what, 2005? And I've seen stuff too that I've mentioned him a few times. One of my first allies, I guess, or colleagues in the animal rights movement, Gary Yarovsky, who is still a, a good friend of mine. You know, he, He's shown me footage that was never released to the public. I mean, stuff that, like you said, Whitney, that you have a somatic experience of like discomfort or pain in your body. You know, when I think about some of the stuff that I've seen over the years, it's horrifying. And more recently, to kind of use this as a jumping off point, the video of George Floyd being murdered, you know, eight minutes and 46 seconds of this man having the life taken from him, his body, you know, literally, oh, you, you see this man dying in front of you in real time. And it's a conversation of how much of this do I consume and, su and subject myself to and intentionally take in, right? Again, if we, if we look at impressions as food, what are they doing to us on a psychological level? What are they doing to us on a spiritual level? And I'm still trying to discern for myself as I go on in life and not only acknowledge, but honor my sensitivity that would watching more of those kind of videos, not only people of color being murdered, yes, that, that's something that I think is important for us to realize it's happening. But I'm at a point between having watched those videos and the slaughterhouse videos and things that are actually have happened in the world that after I watch them, it's really, really difficult for me to find my psychological balance where for some reason, I think when I was younger and I was watching a lot more of this kind of content, it's hard for me to describe. It's almost like earlier today, as an example, I was on Instagram and an animal rights organization posted a video and I sw I kept going. I couldn't watch it of during this COVID period, some guy paid $50,000 to fly to Africa and on a closed game reserve, shoot an elephant in the head and murder this elephant, right? It's like, I don't need to see that. I could flick through and go, okay, some guy pays 50 grand to go murder an endangered elephant, blah, blah, blah. Like, I know this kind of horrific shit is happening, but I almost feel like what's the line between me consuming that kind of stuff versus the impact it's going to have on me psychologically. If any of this makes sense of like, what is the good in it? And what is, how long is it going to take me to, for me to find my, my balance? Like, is it going to feed more of my anxiety and dread and pain? Or is it going to help me foster an even deeper sense of empathy and compassion and action? And some days I don't know the answer. Like today, as an example, I couldn't watch that video. Like I can't right now psychologically take watching some guy shoot an elephant in the head. I couldn't do it. Understandable. I mean, it's hard to want to choose to watch that. I think people have different reasons for watching that. I mean, I also haven't watched much of the George Floyd footage. I've seen clips. And I remember my first reaction was similar to what you're describing, Jason. Like, I don't want to watch this. And I've had mixed feelings about this over the years. There have been times where I really feel passionate about bearing witness 
Right. Like the pig vigils. Yeah. And it's this idea that this person or animal doesn't have a choice to be tortured or killed. And so if we want to change things, there's one like the energetic level. Can we bear witness to what they went through as a way to shifting the energy into something more positive, perhaps? And sometimes that can motivate us to make change. And if we ignore something for our own reasons, like, I'm not going to do that. It's almost, I've had periods in my life where I felt like that was really selfish. But then there is this point where, I mean, this is two different things too, by the way. Like what you started talking about was the entertainment side of things. And now we're talking about like reality content that's like actually happening. And as I said earlier, I think there's a big difference in our brains. But part of that is also the same because our brains can't really tell the difference between real and fake images. If we see something, we believe it. And so what's interesting to me is some people might be able to see really violent, real content and be so numb to it because of all of the fake violence that they've seen. And that's, I think, part of the issue here and and maybe part of the point back during Columbine when they were thinking like, in a way, kids are practicing to be numb themselves. And actually, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think I read that the military will often use video games to train people to become more numb. And there's actually, I think, a Black Mirror episode about this, about they developed like special VR glasses for the military so that they wouldn't fully be able to comprehend who they were killing. And I think there is some training that's done. I think that's very realistic that if we can convince ourselves to be numb to something and think of another human being or an animal as not important or it's no big deal. Like, I wonder if that's what happened with the man that killed George Floyd and the men that were around him. Are they just so numb to it because that's part of how they cope? You know, it's that's how they do their jobs. Like they can't have that much empathy and compassion. Maybe part of it is racism, but part of this is also like the manipulation that they go through in their training, which is also really disturbing. And I think that, again, that was like one of the big points with Columbine is like, are these kids like basically training themselves to be violent in real life because they're seeing it so often, they're playing it, their bodies are getting that physical memory of holding a gun. And so now holding a real gun is no big deal. And it's a very complex issue. For me, like I haven't really held that many guns, fake or real. And so like a real gun to me is, is feels like a huge deal. Like I feel incredibly uncomfortable with it. But at the same time, I've played video games, let's say at the arcade where they have like a gun, a plastic gun or or even water guns, you know, like all of these things that we kind of are nonchalant about, like they're still designed based on the real thing and they're still kind of mimicking that. And so in a way, it doesn't feel that foreign when the few times I have felt an actual gun in my hand. It's just that I have mentally still this difference in my brain. And not everybody will process it that way. You know, like some people do feel numb to it. And it is very interesting. I think setting boundaries is incredibly important and being aware of how it's affecting you. And I think the process of discussing it with other people, of researching it, of journaling about these things is really therapeutic. 
because if you keep it to yourself so much, it's it's hard to deal with things like this. And it makes me just think a lot about the different extremes and how some people just refuse to watch any violence at all. And, and that to me feels very extreme. But then when I step back and examine it, I think, hmm, maybe they have a point. Like, why is it that I want to watch something violent for entertainment? Or why do I need to see content like an elephant being killed? What is the purpose of that? Aside from the kind perspective of thinking, like, I'm going to bear witness to this creature or this person that's killed. Like, I think that's a really selfless thing to do in a lot of ways. There is also the side of like, am I just watching this to get angry? Is this helping me? Like, do I need that anger to take action? No, I do find that anger does motivate me to take action. But I don't feel like I really need anger to feel motivated and get passionate about things. I think just the idea of something makes it clear to me what feels right or wrong. I don't need to get fired up. And I think a lot of people do, especially if you look online, a lot of our conversations online seem to be fueled by anger. <laughs> you know, it's like people debating one another and trying to get their points across and sharing content online is often like, can you believe this? Like, let's all watch something together to get really riled up and angry about it. And then maybe take some action or maybe just allow ourselves to get angry just for the sake of being angry. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There's an interesting article, Whitney, that I pulled up. There's actually a few that we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. But as we probably come closer to the home stretch of this episode, there's an interesting article that was published about two years ago by a, a PhD, a doctor named Vanessa Lobu called Violent Media and Aggressive Behavior in Children, talking about does watching violent things on TV, movies, or video games promote more aggression. There's a lot of sub-studies that are referenced in this article. It's a very long article, so I'm, I'm not going to say too much of it. But as we get closer to the bottom of the article, it references several studies that says there are multiple research studies suggesting that violent media can cause aggressive behavior in children. And incredibly problematic for the violent media includes guns, specifically guns, and that there's a study from 2017 that references that children have difficulty understanding the difference between real and toy guns, which is what you were talking about, Whitney, kind of like, oh, am I holding a toy gun or a real gun? Interestingly, as it goes on, it talks about that guns don't even need to be featured in the media to cause aggression. The mere presence of a gun can elicit more aggressive behavior. For example, a 1967 study talks about how having a gun sitting on your table in front of you can make you more aggressive. And more recent study from 2017 also talked about how having a gun in the car makes people more aggressive drivers. Interesting stuff. We will link to this in the show notes. As I mentioned, it's a longer article. And this is certainly, I mean, from a psychological perspective, a spiritual perspective, an anthropological perspective, there's probably a lot of work and research being done and has been done on this. Um, but to me, it kind of goes on a deeper level, Whitney, uh, to the core of when we talk about having a peaceful society or an equitable society or, I suppose, healing a lot of the deep, deep fractures in human society, which certainly this year, 2020, has brought up a lot of deep, painful fissures and fractures from healthcare to racism to the financial system to social justice to there's so many issues that I think are laid bare now that we can't ignore and we can't run from. And I, I ultimately believe that's good. But since the dawn of, I suppose, any sort of 
agrarian organized human society spanning thousands and thousands of years. It seems to me with the research I've done, even going back to Egypt and Sumeria and early cultural structures, violence and aggression and war has been a part of human society since the dawn of time. And so I don't know if it's possible for us to exist in a container of an organized human society, especially with nearly 8 billion people on the planet, to not have a violent world. I think maybe if we understand why we feel so violent and why people feel aggressive and hateful, and maybe some of these social issues, again, with healthcare, financial, racial, we can start to maybe understand our psychopathy a little bit more and why we're so violent and angry toward each other. Because I certainly hope that we can live in a less brutal world, a less violent world, a less hateful world. But some days, you know, it's, it's hard. You know, we go on social media, we see the comments, we see the aggression. I mean, almost every day I'm, I'm looking at a comment thread from people and there's so much anger and hatred in these comment threads. And I try not to lose my faith in humanity, I think is what I'm trying to say. I try not to. I think it's important that we don't. And having discussions like this can be a really positive thing because it's certainly shifting my thoughts. It's bringing more awareness. And I can talk to other people about this too. I can feel inspired. And then we have the listeners and maybe they have conversations and they reflect on it. And then each of us can start to contribute to a more conscious world where we're paying attention to these things and the roles that we play and finding the balance that works for us and doing our best based on what we know, because we all go through different phases of our life where we have awareness about why we're doing something. Or sometimes we just want to be able to do something just to do it, like just to watch a movie or just watch a video. Or sometimes we accidentally see these things. You know, you go on a platform like TikTok, for example, and you're just scrolling through and then you stumble upon something that makes you feel really uncomfortable, you know? And I think social media platforms have done nice jobs about warning you. And they'll sometimes like tell you that there's something graphic going on and you can choose to watch it or not. And I think that's really helpful. And and even like movie ratings, they, they're often a little flawed in terms of what they're... <laughs> purposes and how they get their ratings and that whole thing, which is a whole nother story. But the ratings are in place to just give you a heads up. And even our show has the explicit rating. And that's to let people know that we swear on here and that we talk about uncomfortable things like this so that you're prepared when you listen. And if you don't want to hear anything explicit, you don't have to listen to our show at all. And maybe you have a setting where you don't ever hear this. And I've I've thought like, hmm, I wonder if that limits our audience. But in a way, we want to speak really freely about this and be able to explore a lot of different things and naturally discuss it without being so worried. But I think we can also have awareness about the violence in our words too. And I think some people are very adamant about not swearing and listening to swear words for a lot of the similar reasons that we've been exploring here with physical violence, visual violence, you know, like words can make you feel something uncomfortable as well. And some people just have very strong boundaries about that. So I think the way to better understand this is is to, as I mentioned earlier, discuss it and pay attention to really tune into how you're feeling about something and what your motivations are. And, and also having discussions with other people to understand their boundaries. Are they okay with watching what you want to watch? Are they okay with you sharing something with them? 
how do they feel about something after it happened? And giving somebody that space to be able to verbalize their feelings is also very important. And to have those dialogues instead of debates about things and paying attention to when we feel angry or uncomfortable or scared or sad and anxious. And so I'm really grateful that you brought this up, Jason, based on your experiences with this. Yeah, I I think it's a good discussion to have, Whitney, because again, it's a deeper conversation of what in the human consciousness is drawn to violence or to be violent or consume violence. It's certainly an ongoing conversation. I mean, (laughs) there's been moments, I know you and I have briefly discussed this, where I've contemplated going back to school to study to be a psychotherapist because this kind of stuff fascinates me, the human psyche and just how many dimensions and layers there are to our identities and our psychopathy and our conditioning and our belief systems. Psychology is just so, so interesting. So yeah, just I'm glad that we were able to dive into this today because I don't know, there's just been a lot of thoughts of childhood, a lot of old thoughts, things I haven't thought about in, in years or even decades that have kind of been coming to me in these these late night insomniatic musings. So I'm sure there'll be more. And I'm sure, you know, as you said, we'll never be starving for content or topics here on, on the podcast. But I suppose as we throttle toward the end, as we do, we want to bring you, dear listener, recommendations from products we are excited about, and then also get into our uh, current tradition of our frequently asked query. So Whitney, is there a new product or a brand shout out, something you're stoked about that you want to share with the listener? Well, first, I want to acknowledge that bitter... What's it called? The Bitter Housewife, that drink that you brought me? Yeah. It's great. I tried it today. I loved all the different flavors. It kind of... I don't know if they have different flavors, but the one that you gave me had a lot of flavors that I associate with Thanksgiving, like cloves and nutmeg. And I think there was cinnamon in there. And it was just really lovely. You mentioned that it's not sweet. And so I was prepared for it to actually be bitter. But it was more that it was the simplicity of all those different ingredients that were in there. And it was just super lovely. And I'm curious what you have learned about the company and their mission and why they formulate their products the way they do, Jason, because I want to learn more about them myself. I haven't dug too deep into that, to be honest with you. It's a gift that my girlfriend, Laura, got from her mom. She's a, a friend of the owners. And I know that they handcraft these in Portland. Shout out to Portland. It keeps coming up. I may be I may I may be moving there at some point, but apparently they have a ton of really incredible bitters. They have aromatic bitters, orange bitters, cardamom bitters. That sounds so good. But yeah, these are all kind of an offshoot of cocktail bitters. So I guess they have glass bottled cocktail bitters. Can you explain what bitters are for anybody who doesn't know? Yeah, bitters, from what I understand, are non-alcoholic sort of aperitifs. They're things that are made from plant extracts or citruses or spices that you can either combine with alcohol, you can combine combine with liquor to add different flavor elements, or you can actually kind of just drink them straight up. So this sparkling one that I gave you is literally kind of these concentrated herbs and plant elements that you can consume outright. So for me, I've had bitters in small doses, almost like a shot, but I've also had them mixed with liquor. So I think bitters have been around, according to her, her website, I'm looking at it right now, since like 1806. So a bottle of cocktail bitters are usually 35 to 45% alcohol. And again, they're infused with barks and roots and herbs and sages. So it apparently seems to be like a really cool alchemical process. 
There's more about it on their website, which is thebitterhousewife.com that we'll link into the show notes at wellevator.com. But they have a lot of different flavored bitters. They have recipes on here. Oh, man. They're re- oh, okay. So if anybody is into being a barista or a cocktail maker, they have some really cool recipes on their website, Whitney. Well, I'll have to check that out because I do love playing barista. <laughs> this also leads into the other brand I wanted to give a shout out to, which we've mentioned a few times on our show and our website, which is called Peak Tea. And they actually have a special sale going on and we have a discount code for them. We're an affiliate of theirs, full transparency, which means that if you purchase them based on our recommendation and this discount code we have, then we will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. You can get 15% off and free shipping on their back to school bundles, which I think is really neat because they're all about building the immune system. And going back to school is a big (laughs) debate point right now. A lot of people are trying to determine how they'll go back to school or if they'll go back to school, whether that's college or elementary or high school or kindergarten. It's a complicated subject matter. So even if you are not going back to school, you can still use this. Now, Peak Tea, we love because they are 100% organic triple toxin screened for the highest possible purity. And most importantly for us, they're super convenient. They're also sugar-free, so nothing added. They're just pure crystals, which means that they're crystallized tea. So we often think about tea leaves and tea bags. So the leaves are within some bag that you dip into hot water to make your tea. And that can be really lovely, but there are some environmental sides to that. Usually you have like the package, there's like box, and then there's a bunch of tea bags contained in other bags. There's like a lot of different layers to get to the tea. And actually, tea bags are not always made from great materials. Sometimes they're even made from materials that you do not want to consume, like glues or I think sometimes plastics. So you always have to be mindful about how you're drinking your tea if you're not using loose leaf tea and putting it in some sort of strainer of your own, which I prefer to do. Peak tea is just powder inside the little bag that you get. And they're super convenient for two reasons. One is that you can just pour it into hot water, but some of them you can put into cold water too. Like my favorite peak tea is the jasmine green tea. I was just about to say that is my favorite as well. It's probably one of the best jasmine green teas I've ever had. And that can go into cold water so you can have instantaneous iced jasmine green tea. But it's also like the flavor blows my mind every time I have it. And it's really nice for giving you a quick boost of energy. They do have some caffeine-free teas that you can choose from. They have a really lovely hibiscus herbal tea. They have a number of their teas are designed specifically to support your immune system which I really love. So they're just a company we can rave about. So you might as well save some money. You can get that 15% off and free shipping. If you go to, there's two actual ways to get to it. And we're going to link to it in our show notes. So if if you do just go to podcast.wellevator.com and find this episode, you'll easily find that link. But there's two other links that you can use if you just want to type it in. Uh, One of them is podcast.wellevator.com slash peak tea, which I know is a little long. 
I think the other one, I'm double checking it right now, is just peakt.com slash Wellevator. So peakt.com slash Wellevator, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R, will give you 15% off and free shipping on these bundles, which are going through August. So it is a little time sensitive. And we would love your feedback if you drink peak tea. We would love to know if you enjoy it as much as we do. We want to know what flavors you enjoy. That'll be a good little conversation starter for us to have. There's a bunch of flavors I've never tried before that I really want to have. They also have a really good Earl Grey. Are there any other flavors I didn't mention, Jason, that you like? No, I think my top two, definitely the jasmine and the hibiscus. Yes. The hibiscus, I think, has a little sweetener in it, doesn't it? Like a stevia or something? I think it does, yeah. I've actually combined those two together. Just like, hey, I want to be an alchemist too. And I actually find that the sweetness, because jasmine has a little bit of bitterness to it. I don't mean that in a bad way, but green teas generally do. But the light sweetness of the hibiscus goes really well with the jasmine. So I actually will bust open a couple of those packets and do a combo, and it's outstanding. The other flavor I really want to try is called White Peony. I think that's a new flavor for them. I'm super curious what that tastes like. And that's also cold and hot water soluble. And the website's just lovely. They just do a great job educating you. You can learn so much on there. So again, peaktea.com slash Wellevator will not only get you the discount, but it'll show you all of the amazing information they have about how tea can support your immune system, your gut health, help you feel more calm. So we've talked a lot about violence today. Sometimes you just need a cup of tea to help ease your mind and your body. And that's why they felt like the perfect brand to bring up. All right. As Jason mentioned, we do the frequently asked queries section. I have two today to share. One I felt like was a great tie into this. Actually, both of them are. So you choose the order, Jason. Do you want the interesting one or the serious one first? Do serious and then interesting. Okay. The query was, if the hurt comes, so will the happiness. Yeah. Do you think that's true? I think that if we choose it, that if we sit with our pain and we sit with our trauma, we sit with our hurt and we don't run from it, we don't try and bypass it, we don't try to stay in victim consciousness and not acknowledge that it's happened. I think that through sitting with, acknowledging, processing, and transmuting our pain, that we can get to a state of release and a state of openness and a state of trust and a state of happiness. Yeah, I do believe that. But I think if we somehow subvert our pain, our trauma, our wounds, or bypass it or act like it's not there, we will be carrying that with us throughout our entire lives, like a very heavy sack of old potatoes that are growing the roots and the eyes and the kind of potatoes that you can't really save, the ones in the back of the cabinet, you know, the ones that you're like, I really want mashed potatoes. Oh shit, I left those potatoes too long. Your trauma, your pain, all those things are going to become like rotten old potatoes in the back of your cabinet that you got to lug around the rest of your life. So yeah, I think there's something to be said about doing the work on ourselves and not because there's a reward at the end of it, but because we want to liberate ourselves. And I think if we're dedicated to liberation and growth and lightening the load, if you will, we've got to address our pain. There's no getting around it. I think that's one of the the main reasons we want to do this podcast. We continue to do it is that we talk about painful things. We talk about traumatic things. We talk about difficult things because we don't want to bypass that stuff. And we're dedicated to not bypassing it when we're aware of it. Very well said. 
That was a very thoughtful response to that query. The second query is a question. And I'm curious if you've heard of this before, because I don't think I have. The query is, does apple juice make you lucid dream? I've never heard this in my life. Neither have I, but I just looked it up and it seems like there's a lot of discussion around this. And one article says that it can increase levels of something that I really cannot pronounce. I'm going to text this to you, Jason. Uh, just you're going to put it in the chat box? Yeah. Tell me, how oh, do you pronounce that word? Yeah, acetylcholine. Okay. See, now that you say it, I'm like, oh, that sounds so easy to pronounce. But when I look at that word, I'm like, how the hell do you pronounce that? Acetylcholine. Spelling so, champ from seventh grade. <laughs> it can lead to vivid dreams, but there's no conclusive evidence on this, according to amerysleep.com. So I do not know the answer, but I guess there's like a whole phenomenon around apple juice dreams. <laughs> Very interesting. And there's research that shows the benefit of apple juice and neurotransmitters. This is actually really fascinating. So I don't know. I guess it's worth a try. Like, why don't you give it a shot and see what happens? But lucid dreaming is is certainly a whole art form or a practice that you can explore. And I think it's it's a lovely thing. You might actually be able to address some things that are deep in your consciousness if you do some lucid dreaming. So why not? We did talk about lucid dreaming in at least one other episode. So we'll link to that one for you to listen to if you're curious about lucid dreams. Yeah, I'd never heard about the apple juice thing. My experience with substances for lucid dreaming were more centered around certain adaptogenic herbs and tonic herbs like ashwagandha, passionflower, skullcap, things like that, that are said to like slow down the central nervous system and somehow have a I suppose, a more calmative effect on our neurochemistry, but I never heard apple juice. As we, at the time of this recording, are heading ever closer to fall, Whitney, one of my favorite things to drink in the fall is apple cider that you go and go to the apple orchard and get. So I wonder if apple cider has the same effect because now I'm, I'm down to try it now. I really wish you had been with me the last time I went back east, which was last October, because I went to the coolest apple orchard and there was like, it was in New York state where my sister lives. And you're just giving me a flashback to it because there was like two farms across the street from one another. And this is of course before COVID. So it was like a different world, but there was like this huge apple festival happening on one side of the street where like rides and like apple cider donuts and apple pies and like course apple cider and there was like cool popcorns flavored popcorns that you could have and i got to try to find the name of that place and then across the street there was a another farm up on a hillside that had a maze a corn maze that you could go through and it was just so much fun like celebrating fall there was all these people around and just having all of this delicious food i do miss being on the east coast for that reason because apple cider I think has become a little bit more common in California, Southern California specifically. But I remember there were times out here where I would crave apple cider and had a really hard time finding it because it's just not like it is on the Northeast where there are lots of apple orchards. So Jason, it makes me equally eager to go back to the East Coast. And I know it's a big bummer that you and I don't have that trip planned. We certainly could just go 
back to the East Coast. True, true. But it does require a lot more planning. And I just don't know how much that experience will be the same during COVID. It's hard to plan trips right now, which is frustrating. It's hard to plan a lot of stuff right now, which I think is to kind of go back to the conversation about anxiety and insomnia and and maybe horrible thoughts that I've been having that I think I'm certainly still so used to forecasting my year that this time is so much uncertainty and so much like, yeah, it's just hard to make plans. And it's just a good time to breathe and meditate and let go and trust that to go back as we wrap this episode up, one of my favorite tenets that my mentor Michael shares with me and reminds me, especially in times of anxiety during COVID is what is, is good and to my advantage, whether or not I can see it or feel it in the moment. And so I anchor in that in moments of anxiety that I may not know why all this is happening. Who the hell knows why all this is happening? We try and have theories and musings about all of this, but ultimately I have to believe that we live in a friendly universe. We live in a, in a reality that ultimately is for our benefit, even in times of darkness, pain, grief, sadness, violence. I think I keep getting brought back to either through someone I trust like Michael or just my own spiritual beliefs, Whitney, that through all of that, through all of this craziness we're going through, there is some semblance of faith and trust that I have in the goodness of life. And I'm glad that that hasn't, I think I'd be really worried if I lost that. If that left my, my being fully, I'd be really worried about myself, but it hasn't. So in that sense, dear listener, we appreciate you getting uncomfortable with us as we do here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. And for all of the links to the articles about psychology, any of the references to books, movies, any additional reading materials, you will find those in the show notes as you do with all of the episodes here on the podcast. You can go to our main website, which is wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, or directly to our podcast subsite, which is podcast.wellevator.com. And if there's one thing we want you to take away from this episode, it's that we love to hear from you, whether that's through a DM an email, a comment on the actual show notes of what impact has sort of disturbing or violent content had in your life? Has it affected you? Can you watch it? Do you stop watching it? What effect does it have on your spiritual life or your mental health? We would love your input. We always love to hear from you and what your perspectives are on these topics. So if there's one takeaway, we want to hear from you and what your perspectives are on the content we shared here today. With that, if you want to reach out on social media, on all of the major platforms, we are at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And once again, thanks for being with us, digging in the deep end as we do as we go down the well. And we will catch you again for another episode on the podcast here soon. Thanks so much. And one more shout out is, speaking of ways to interact with us, we are on this platform called Good Pods, which is a newish app where you can follow each other and see what podcast you're listening to. So this is a great way to not only listen to our show and connect with us, but we can share episodes with each other and just kind of have more interaction. So I've been using that app a little bit more. And if you've never used it before, I recommend that you check it out. You can use the link in our show notes to go directly to our show or just go to Good Pods on the App Store for whatever platform you use to download apps Look up that and then you can look up This Might Get Uncomfortable and connect with us. And we'd love to see what else you're listening to because we like podcasts too. Bada boom, bada bing. You know how to get at us. So let us know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're musing because we're in this together ultimately. So we love you. We appreciate you. Thanks for sharing the goodness. And yeah, Whitney, I'm going to go not watch horror movies now.
<laughs> Good idea. I, on the other hand, just finished watching a documentary series about a serial killer. So lots of things to reflect on these <laughs> days, Jason. Thank you for giving me all this food for thought. For sure. Thanks, Whitney. We'll catch you soon. <laughs> Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.